Welcome to MMU, Murdered, Missing, Unsolved. Across this series of episodes, I talk to the first British journalist to arrive at the scene of what became the most infamous missing person case of a generation, Madeleine McCann. The McCanns had no idea what they were walking into, what holiday they were booking. From his base in southern Spain, I discussed the case with author John Clark, who guides us through his search for the monster at the dark heart of this tragic crime. I needed to understand what created this monster and how he got away with it. Madeleine McCann, the chief suspect. Back in the early stages of the investigation, missing child, family and Robert Murat are within the orbit of the investigation, but never too far away, rationally, would be the sense that here we have a seaside resort, transient community, and this may be a magnet for sex offenders. How did the force publicly demonstrate to journalists on the ground that they were investigating and eliminating all these sex offenders in the area or in the wider area? They said they knew who the local offenders were. They were checking them. They were going around speaking to them. But of course, they said they knew that someone had kidnapped her and they knew where she was and they were talking to the kidnappers. We started to realise there was a lot of these strange people living within the 10, 15 miles of Pradeluge. And we went round and tried to meet some of them and investigate some of them. It was at this point that the journalist I was working with at Sunday Mirror, she found Robert Murat strange. He had been really pretty odd when I first arrived. It was a bit unusual the way he'd been so forthcoming and gushing about information. And so she, she felt that it was her duty to report him to... The police. And so she contacted um, Leicestershire police about him. I supported her, I guess. She mentioned Soham. If you remember the two girls in Soham and Ian Huntley, the caretaker who'd taken an uncanny interest in the case right from the beginning and asked lots of questions of the journalists and became pally with everyone. He did show these sort of traits. I just think he was being friendly. Now I look back, but I think she was right to maybe raise up the flagpole to Leicestershire police. She didn't report it. She wrote to Leicestershire police, spoke to them, sent an email. They contacted her, interviewed her. They then asked her to report to the local police. And she went and spoke to the GNR officer who referred her to a PJ officer. GNR is the local, very local police. And PJ is the Polythea Judicial who were running the investigation. They immediately thought they ought to look into this. And that's when they started to focus their attentions onto Robert Murat. I must stress, the Sunday Mirror didn't run any stories actually at all on this. I think it broke on the Monday. I remember Ian Woods at Sky, report, remember him reporting outside Murat's house about how he'd been, he'd been arrested. And the Sunday Mirror, she didn't get to run anything at all until the following Sunday. And by then it's probably moved on so much, I don't think she reported anything. I think she was doing it out of a duty, Donald. I think a lot of the journalists said, we were just trying to sort of, like we often do is people sort of malign us, just think we're out to make a fast buck or get the best story. Actually, sometimes we do act humanely and we're trying to sort of solve things. Robert was an early a Guido. Then the family naturally were under suspicion because traditionally that is what happens. And then, of course, they were made a Guidos after the cadaver dog. Explain how they both left the reckoning as suspects and then how the investigation developed from there. Once they made Murat a suspect, so he, as you said, an Guido, it's like an official suspect, really. It's a weird case. It means that you've also got the right to legal uh, counsel and gives you some protection under Portuguese law. I don't quite understand it, really. It, to me, it just means that you're in the world, the eyes the world's press that they think you might be guilty but that's not what they say and so at one point they kind of overlapped the McCanns were Aguidos as well as Murat don't forget I was back in Spain as well I backwards and forwards a lot to start with but I was also launching a newspaper when the McCanns started to get investigated I wasn't there so much so I don't know so much the nitty-gritty around it I just know that I just didn't believe it for a second I, I just couldn't 
get my head around why they were accusing the family when I just just could not see it. I couldn't understand it, not for a second, that could see any chance that it was the family involved in this. I knew having lived in southern Spain for some years, having seen how the police sometimes worked in southern Spain, I figured it was the same in Portugal. It was an easy option. And someone mentioned this poor girl, Joanna, who'd gone missing a couple of years early, just vanished. Same police force with the mother supposedly beaten up to get the confession. I just thought, well, look, come on, this is so obvious. And then they had the Casapia case came out. That was a horrendous institutionalised paedophile ring going on for 20, 30 years. So I just, my head went down, Donald. I just thought, I don't want to know about this case now. And it was upsetting me a lot at this point and I just just tried to kind of focus on what was happening in Spain and other stories. So when you kind of returned to the story at this stage, the case had run dry, Murat and the McCanns were no longer a Guidos and the Portuguese police had reached a, a brick wall and said they'd gone as far as they could. The family were trying to finance their own investigation. Explain how you came back into it and how you've ploughed this furrow since. I mean, I remember a year, the year anniversary, I wrote a big feature piece about how I didn't believe the family were involved. It was a piece I'd written when the family were first arrested saying, I just don't believe it. And this is why. So I repeated a slightly more in-depth piece a year later on the anniversary saying, I'm sure that someone snatched Madeline. But that's when the trolls just sort of went for me. But you asked the question, in what ways I'm involved in the case? So many times we were brought into the case as journalists with the Olive Press to investigate links in Spain. There were so many connections to Spain. I mean, Jerry McCann had was convinced that she was brought across the border into Huelva. They came over and they campaigned around Huelva and into Seville, I think. And we kept getting calls, people saying they'd seen her here, they'd seen her there. Could you look into this guy? Could you look into that guy? Could you look into this sicko, that sicko? So we were backwards and forwards all over. I mean, I, I remember at one point, I think we I think we had in one year something like 10 sightings. And we've certainly done over, well over a dozen stories between 2008 and 2012. When did you begin to start looking at and saying, right, the police are in denial and they're in denial because paedophilia is bad for business. So when did you begin to recognise that there was a paedophile in the area who would match the description as an opportunist offender who could have snatched Madeleine McCann? There's a number of really key sightings in the week or weeks running up to that day on in May 2007. Some of them were like charity collectors. They were supposedly collecting for an orphanage. To this day, no one knows which orphanage it is because there isn't actually any orphanage in the area. These guys were going door to door, knocking on doors, soliciting money. No one can sort of really verify who they were. And they've never come forward to say, yes, we were collecting for so-and-so orphanage. They could have been checking out most likely apartments to burgle or to rob, houses to rob. Or equally, as you say, an opportunist, one of them might have just seen a child clearly being left around or, or took a fancy to a child. So that's group one. Group two is two blonde men who were seen on a terrace just below the McCann's apartment a couple of hours before she went missing. They'd never come forward, never been identified, talking in hushed tones. Apparently one of them came out, looked furtively left and right and, and walked out the alleyway below the McCann's house. Also, you've then got the third interesting sighting, which is a, a local girl, a local expat girl, English girl, 10 years old, twice, three days apart, spotted a man supposedly standing in the street outside the Ocean Club, looking up at the apartment, just sort of staring. So that third sighting by this young child, that's quite unusual. Describe that to me again. She's been taken to school by her mother. She has to walk down to catch the bus just above the supermarket that's just below the Ocean Club. So we're talking about 8, 30, 9 o'clock. She saw this guy ostensibly looking, in her opinion, looking strange and looking straight up at 
the apartment in the same area. She gave a description. She said he was quite sort of pockmarked, ugly, not a pleasant person to look at. And she found this guy suspicious, unusual. It gives a suggestion that the apartments were being watched, to my mind. It gives you a sense that people were walking around that shouldn't have necessarily been there. I mean, there was another occasion, I remember that someone had spotted a guy lurking under one of the stairwells in the week before that there was odd. Because it's so wide open, anyone could kind of get in there. My concern with this is that race towards this massive surveillance operation to snatch one kid is that it serves a couple of needs. One, it serves to, in many ways, exonerate the parents, because as if to say that even though we weren't looking after the children in the way that they would have wished now, in retrospect, that actually with an army of paedophiles surrounding them and under nearly 24-hour surveillance, there was nearly nothing they could have done to protect Maddie. She was already a marked child. In relation to the failure of both the, the Portuguese police and Operation Grange, it also serves that need that actually it was such an army of paedophiles that basically... No amount of resources could help us to solve this problem. So he exonerates them from all of that. Plus, it gives the imperative to throw more cash at it. In the end of the day, it's some sleazy paedophile, repeat offender who's very good at what they do, regularly getting away at sex crimes. And that is by far more realistic than anything else. Actually, I think you have to remember that at the top of the book in the restaurant, very early on, they stayed there for six nights, didn't they? They were going to eat there every single night. They were going to eat in the restaurant at the same time. And at the top of the uh, signing in book, the guest book for the restaurant, they put at the top family, leaving children at home, eating dinner every night, going back to check on their children. Anyone could have spotted that and thought, oh, well, the children are all in their apartments every night on their own. People tip off thieves all the time, don't they? A cleaner would tip someone off about some guests staying with a lot of money. I think that someone may well have tipped them off on that restaurant booking system. What I'm saying is that it's much more likely that it was an opportunistic job on behalf of some fixated preferential paedophile who has done this a million times before, rather than an army of paedophiles putting it under constant surveillance. And It's unlikely given that in Portugal and indeed in Spain, there are kids wandering around everywhere at night going back to the shops. And there's a lot easier targets than, than going into someone's apartment and walking up the steps and sliding the patio door open and finding her and then sneaking out. You know, of course, are much more easy targets. I think your point is she could have woken up. Yes, correct. She could have walked down the steps. Yes, she could have been spotted by someone. It's that time of night, 9.30, it's dark, it's getting dusk. Anyone could have been driving past. A certain uh, Christian B might have been driving past. Let's face it, he'd lived around that area for, for seven years. He knew the area like the back of his hand. He was still living nearby in Farral in land and he was staying on beaches nearby and staying nearby and he had friends nearby. He could have so easily just been driving past in his VW van. Oh, there's a girl walking out or she looks a bit confused or bang as you say opportunism I am suspicious of this big orchestrated campaign and she was picked to order and she was put under surveillance 24-7 no amount of protection around this child would have protected her that's just not the way these crime predefiled networks operate it's much more opportunistic and it's much more chaotic than that people supposedly said he had a job to do the next day so he might have been doing it on behalf of someone it may have been that that person was taking her to order but I do agree with you that if you look at the Casa Pier network you've got a huge network of orphans orphanages and, and underprivileged children. Pedophile networks function within institutions, the Catholic church, orphanages, schools, where there's a huge population of kids running around a variety of ages on the streets, on the beaches and all of this stuff. That is why pedophiles and sex offenders are attracted to transient communities, which allows them to operate in plain sight. I'm suggesting that if we're going to the core of this, it is much more an opportunistic crime. It is. Can I just make one point here, Donald, though? The fact, the very fact that you could park your car right outside that apartment 
apartment and sit there with a camera, video camera, binoculars, and quietly watch that apartment so close to it. That must have been, could have been quite a sort of kick for a, a sex offender, right? The fact that it's not a protected, closed holiday club with proper security, proper video cameras, gates like you have at schools these days, monitoring people coming in and out, that makes it, to my mind, much easier for someone who who wanted to monitor it. You now have specialised and targeted the primary suspect in the case today. Explain to me, and this is the focus of your book, how Christian Bruckner became a target for you and also the German police. Donald, how many years and how many times have we been at this stage where we thought someone's come forward and there's someone in the ring? We, in fact, it was a year before that we thought there was a German guy that was involved and it was a guy called Martin Ney and he had all the hallmarks of being the person who would have taken Maddie. He was a dangerous predatory paedophile who'd killed children in Germany. In fact, killed them in four different countries, three years apart. And the previous time was in 2004 and how perfect it would therefore be that it was 2007 that he would have taken Maddie and killed her. The only spry in the ointment being that he was interested in boys. They were all boys. That was what his thing was and it wasn't little girls. While he was in the area at the time, let's not forget he was working for a homeless charity for the Catholic Church in and around Lagos and Prada Luge at the time. He was there. Nothing to say that he didn't know the person who did it or was involved in some way or helped or advised, but I don't think it was him. It's a year later that we discovered the German police, the BKA, out of uh, Braunschweig, which is one of the federal 16 federal states, announced in a press conference that uh, they're investigating a prime suspect in the case of missing, well, dead, murdered Madeleine McCann. They, they say it's a murder case. Came out of the blue. They announced we know we want more information on two cars that he may have driven, on two places that he may have lived in. We want more information about people who might have known him. They didn't give his name initially. They said that, that we are, this is a murder inquiry. And that was the moment that I just was, I couldn't believe it. I mean, we hit, we saw it on BBC News, middle of the afternoon. I was stunned. They're absolutely blown away by it. More details are emerging of the new suspect in the Madeleine McCann case, who, according to German media, is now being investigated over the disappearance of a five-year-old girl in Germany. It's reported the suspect is being named as Christian B, a 43-year-old man who's believed to have been in the same area of southern Portugal, where three-year-old Madeleine went missing while on holiday in 2007. And what was significant about that press conference that I recall was that for the first time, a police force said Maddie McCann was dead. And this was very definitive. And the family, for all the reasons you would understand, suggesting that Maddie may still be alive and holding out some hope that she may continue to have lived an abducted life well into her teens. But the police force had declared her effectively dead. Hans Christian Volters, if you remember, is the prosecutor. He came forward and said, we have evidence to show that Madeline McCann is dead and we know who this suspect is. In fact, they also gave two phone numbers that had been used on the night that she went missing in the vicinity of the Ocean Club in Pradaluge from 7.30 for half an hour. A phone call was made between these two phones, both of which, by the way, were burner phones. They appealed if anyone knew these numbers. They pretty much thought they knew who the guy is. They thought they had their man. Now... For the first time, the German police are isolating and say they now have the prime suspect in the Maddie McCann case and they're soliciting as much information as they can to try and get a conviction and a charge across the line. 
So for you, when did you actually manage to match Christian Bruckner as a name to the suspect the German police were talking about? His name had been put into the ring many, many years before. And in fact, 2013, they'd first asked him to come in to, to speak to them in the police station. And in fact, it was in 2016 that they first started investigating him, the police force, the BKR police force. And it wasn't, in fact, till 2017 that they got the prosecution and said, look, what do you think, guys? You know, I think we've got a good case here. We can prosecute this guy and the prosecutor's like well okay yeah we we'll look, looked at the evidence yeah great carry on investigating we'll spend some money and put quite a lot of money towards it so it's another two years of investigation after that two and a half years until 2020 when they finally announced that they had a lot of the jig pieces of the jigsaw but they're clearly missing certain key things i saw that on that afternoon and i i didn't know his name. I knew there was a German man of a certain age, they say 45 or 44, whatever he was. And I just straight away got on the phone to the news editor at the Mail on Sunday and just said, I think I should get to Pradeluge. What do you think? So, you know, it was during the lockdown. It was, it was still difficult to travel. I mean, the border between Portugal and Spain was shut first time in years. He said, yes, just get there as soon as you can. Great. Let's investigate it. To answer your question, it wasn't. It was during the journey, sometime later that day, or indeed over through the night, that his name came out as Christian B. And it was the English press the next day that announced his name as Christian Bruckner. And what was the key bit of information the German prosecutors had that linked them to the Madeleine McCann case? They haven't really told us exactly. When I interviewed Volters uh, recently in, in Germany, he admitted there's certain things they've got that they haven't released. I believe there's quite a lot. But what they do have is evidence that he used one of those two phones where the phone call was made just before she went missing. They also have evidence the cars he used. They believe he was in that vicinity. They also know his track record and what he was up to at the time. So the starting point here for you is an understanding from the German police is that Christian Bruckner, a fixated preferential paedophile, established despicable sex offender, was in the area at the time Madeleine McCann went missing. And this was fresh news because if you have a sex offender in an area where a child goes missing, they must surely have been made suspects from day one. But that never happened. No, it didn't. It didn't. But the German police, they said by amazing fortune, the Portuguese police had kept the phone records from that night so they could actually get all the phone numbers and go through them. In fact, I think Operation Grange had them as well, but they hadn't worked out which numbers went to which person. But it was the German police who they said by good German policing, with these exact words, said that we were able to work out that one of these phone numbers was a phone number used by a very dangerous German paedophile and sex offender called Christian Bruckner. And they they worked out, they traced the two together, that he had been indeed there at that exact time. And let's not forget, people might say, oh, well, he lived in the area. What would you expect? No, well, actually, he didn't live in the area. He had lived in the area, but he'd moved out of the area. He'd actually gone to prison, and we can get, talk about that another time, but he'd been out of prison, and since he'd come out of prison, he'd actually been living about 40 minutes away or 35 minutes away, a little village called Farrell. But he knew the area like the back of his hand, and on that particular night, he was there. I mean, his phone number was making a phone call. Now, to this day, Donald, we don't know who he was speaking to. The German police say they don't know. They appealed to know who he was speaking to, who had that other phone. Christian hasn't come forward and told us. He hasn't given us an alibi yet. So we have to try and understand who he was speaking to for, for half an hour. That's a long call, right? Isn't it? A 30-minute call. Who makes 30-minute phone calls? Ostensibly outside because he didn't have a house at the time in Pradeluge. So he's either in his van nearby. And this is another thing we have to try and understand is exactly how close. The police said he was right next to the Ocean Club, but I don't think they can really be sure of that. Difficult to try 
triangulate because there's only one aerial mobile phone aerial there. So it's hard to know exactly where he was. They seem to think he was outside the Ocean Club. They haven't explained why yet. That was the point that he's there. He's outside. He's a dangerous man. He's a convicted sex offender. He's a convicted rapist. And he's outside the Ocean Club on the night that Madeline goes missing. And so... This is the moment when your manhunt, your investigation into Christian Bruckner begins. That's when it starts. So from then, I've been full tilt looking into him and just trying to understand who this man was and just quite how he was able to travel around and get away with so much for so long. Although he was an early suspect, Robert Morat was completely cleared of all wrongdoing, as were Jerry and Kate McCann in the immediate few months following Madeline's disappearance. To find out more about the case and what we've discussed in this episode, John Clark's book, My Search for Madeline, is available now. Murdered Missing Unsolved is presented by me, Donald McIntyre, and produced by Inherent Productions and Steve Langridge. Music is by Alex Sane, and additional audio production by John Franklin Audio.